Welcome everybody this morning. If you're, uh, if, you're, if you're new here with us this morning, you join us for the first time, or the first, uh, second or third time. My name is Andrew, and uh, I get to be one of the pastors here at Southside. Oh, I forgot that. Thank you, Jeff. Look at this. First class service over here. Gee. Um, yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm impressed by you showing up on a long weekend. Um, I'm impressed by anybody showing up to church on a long weekend. Not that I don't think we would or should. Um, we just live in a culture that, uh, that says we should be elsewhere on a long weekend, not here worshiping Jesus together and um, figuring out what his will is for our life. And that's what you're presumably doing here this morning. And so I want to commend you for that and thank you that your presence is with us this morning because your presence is a gift to this community this morning. Uh, Dr. James K. Smith, in his book on how to inhabit time, he posits that our generation's great disorientation is uh, less the result of a confusion uh, regarding where we live and more, um, we're more disoriented about ignorance uh, surrounding when we're living. He suggests that the Christian struggle um, the Christians, we struggle this as much as our post-Christian, post-modern, uh, secular society does, where we, where, we, where we maybe understand the demographics of the community, but, um, but we fail to uh, pay attention to the history that brought us here and uh, what has, has formed us um, and, and made us who we are today. Um, he says that the challenge is, we think of ourselves as like brains in a vat or like use the language of being hatched, right? And, and, and that's kind of what postmodernism, kind of the result of postmodernism does it is, is it, it makes you as a human feel like a totally autonomous individual who's just kind of hatched into the world like you have no history, like there was no evolution or no, or no, or no a season of life that led to this point, right? And, and so we act as, this, as, as though we're like this individual actor in this brand new world, right? And, and, and what, we, what we forget is, um, is that we are just, not just, but we are a part of a, are, are a, part of a history, part of a lineage, part of, part of seasons in the past, that we are embodied. Like there's no humanity that's not embodied, right? The, you, by nature, are embodied. There's no thinking, there's no you, there's no um, soul, at least right now, um, without the, the temporal reality of time and space. That's, that's kind of what... Um, He's saying, and, and, and so he says that it disorients us when we don't know our history, when we don't know our past, we don't know where we've come, um, because we actually don't really know how to act today. We don't know what has happened and what has led to this point. And then what he says is a bigger challenge is we actually uh, struggle with being eschatological people is the language he used. If you spend around any time in church settings, you know, um, eschatology is like the future, like the end. And so he says we can't actually properly predict the future. We can't properly uh, think of ourselves, not just now, but also uh, what we're to become. We can't do that properly if we um, don't know where we've come. It's, it's kind of the, the idea um, he says the church is really good at um, offering disembodied ontological truth, but today's church, we uh, struggle with uh, offering a contextualized truth, a contextualized reality. Like, we can say all the spiritual things and the right things and quote the Bible verses, but, but it has, it's meaningless to you unless it connects to you, the you that is in time and space. And that's the work of contextualization, right? And 
And so the world of ideas, kind of the, almost if you think of it in like platonic forms, like there's all these ideas and it's not that they're wrong. There's just, there needs to be a bridge somehow to the actual you that exists in time and space. And, and he says, when we, when we detach ourselves from our history or, or, um, or from time, then we, 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 we can't actually quite grasp the truth for us today. So, so we may think, oh, that's a good idea, but we don't know how to live it, basically. We don't, we don't know what to do about it. This is kind of what he's suggesting, that truth needs to exist in time and place, at least for humans, right? And God, if God exists outside of time and space, then truth exists outside of time and space, right? It transcends time and space, but you don't, right? That's the idea. And I say all that to say um, that we at Southside, we've been on a bit of a journey, and we're going to continue that journey. We're on a journey of um, trying to understand uh, what God has for us here and now, what he's called us to, who he's called us to be here and now we've been focusing a lot as a faith community on, um, on the primary goal of the Christian life. And we've been saying that the primary goal of the Christian life is to um, become more like Jesus. And if we become more like Jesus, then we, um, we represent the presence of, of God in our community. So we've been saying, well, what does, that, what, does that, what does that mean for us to become more like Jesus? And how do we become more like Jesus so that we could properly live today as Jesus' representative, as Jesus' ambassadors? Today, specifically here in Milton, on what date is it? August 3rd, 6th? I don't even see. Look at me. Failing at this time thing already. We spent a lot of time, um, as a church, we've been spending a lot of time talking about habits and talking about rhythms and we've been talking about calendars and uh, all stuff that doesn't seem juicy and exciting. It's like, it's like, let's talk about this kind of disembodied ontological reality and truth because that's way more interesting. But, but, but like we said, if it doesn't work itself into our calendar, into our rhythm, into our practices, then it doesn't change us in any kind of way. So that's what we've been talking about a lot. And if you're just joining us, you're joining us kind of at the beginning-ish of a journey. I know some of you who have been around for the last year, you're like, wait, we're just beginning that conversation? Haven't we been talking about that for a year? Can't we move on to something else? But the reality is we spent like 12, 13, 14 weeks talking about Sabbath, like just Sabbath. And I don't know about you, but I feel like we just scratched the surface on that. I don't know if you would raise your hand and go, yeah, I Sabbath perfectly today after 14 weeks of talking about it. Anybody? Nobody? No? Yeah, me neither. Um, and then what we did is we said, okay, we got we to gotta, we gotta talk about more things, but we're not moving on from Sabbath. We do got to talk about prayer. So, that's, so we started talking about prayer, and we did that for, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, 15 weeks maybe. Uh, someone's keeping count. Obviously, I'm not, but we, we've been doing this over and over. And, and again, I feel like we just scratched the surface. I don't know about you, but prayer, the conversation for prayer for me was like, whoa, there's so much more here, and there's so much more for me here, and there's, there's so much more to experience in this, in this, in this, in this um, practice of prayer, and there's so much history in the church about prayer and about kinds of prayer and about different um, means of praying and, and different different um, different things to say, and 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 it's just like a beautiful um, history that we're a part of, and and we want to attach ourselves to that, connect ourselves to that, and uh, and start to kind of live out some of those same rhythms and patterns and and routines so that God can have something specific for us here in this city now. So we talked a lot about that. And, uh, and again, the whole, goal of, the whole goal of those things, and we're going to talk about so many more things. We're going to talk about fasting in the fall and then solitude in the winter. And we've we got years and years of talking about some of these practices, and we'll probably revisit them all over again for the next decade. So who's up for that? Um, this is what we're going to do, right? Like, cause it's, that's, well, what else would we do? And, uh, and so uh, it's really exciting um, to think about, like, 
to think that there's so much more for us and, um, and that our ambassadorship of Jesus here in Milton, um, there is a, there's a future. There's an eschatological uh, um, reality that we're living into. And, uh, and there's ways that we can do that more effectively. The, uh, the formula we've been using, but it's not a formula, but it's a formula in some sense, is, is that in order to actually properly become like Jesus, in order to properly um, be an ambassador of Christ, in order to properly represent Christ in our city here in Milton, uh, we need to be with Jesus and in order to become like Jesus, and then we can do the things that Jesus did or would do if he was here. And that's, that's kind of the framework. And if, and, and, and if you can understand, like, everything we're going to be talking about is kind of within this framework. And the whole practice is, the Sabbath thing, the, the prayer thing is about being with Jesus. And, and we believe, I don't know about you, if you grew up in a Christian church, um, maybe you believe and understand and maybe you've experienced that you can actually spend time with the living God. If there's a living God and he's both transcendent but also imminent, then we can be with that living God. And, and, we can, and, and, and his presence is actually can be not only, not only can we know it like in, in, as a spiritual reality and truth, but we can sense it, experience it, and... Um, and interact with the presence of God. And the church has done that through the spiritual practices over thousands of years, and so why, why wouldn't we continue to do that? And the goal of that is, is to become like Jesus. The goal, you know, we don't, we don't it's, not, it's, not like a, it's not like, okay, well, I want to become like Jesus, so let me be with Jesus. We should just long, the Christian life should be a life longing to be with Jesus, and then when we do that, we become like Jesus. And, and when we become like Jesus, we start doing the kinds of things Jesus would do. We, we start really being, you know, you've heard the language of the hands and feet of Jesus in this city, right? That's, you, you, you will just become that because you will start to become like Jesus and, and he'll start to animate you in a, in a special and in, in new way. Uh, this morning, what we're going to talk about is um, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna look at a text that talks about what God's intention for exiles would be how they ought to live in a land that's not theirs. And, and this is kind of like a little bit of just kind of catch-all vision a little bit this morning. And the, the text we're going to look at this morning is Jeremiah 29. And, and many of you um, know, know Jeremiah 29, 11, right? You've, you've probably seen it on walls and you've seen people with tattoos and every other athlete, it's their favorite verse. It's this one, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and future. How many times have you heard that said and you're like, hmm. Is that in proper context? I'm not sure. This is actually one of the most misquoted verses in all of scripture. Um, and if you've been around Christian churches for any amount of time or Christian people or on Christian internet and seen memes, like you've seen this a billion times and, and you're like, this is a beautiful thing, but like, did God say that about you or did he say that about a people in a time? And we're gonna look at the people in a time that he said that about because it helps us understand this context uh, so that we don't uh, misappropriate this specific text this morning. So we're going to spend our time in Jeremiah 29. If you have a scripture, you can open up to Jeremiah 29. We're going to look at kind of the first half of that chapter this morning. And like I said, the goal is to see, um, see the heart of God and the intentions of God for a people in exile. There we are. So let me read the beginning of this. It's verse one. It says this. This is the text of the letter that prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Uh, this letter is um, it's from a revered prophet of Israel named Jeremiah, and it is um, being sent at a time of, uh, of exile. 
And so uh, in, in, the, in the story of Israel, there was moments where Israel felt like they were in the promised land that God promised them. So they felt like they were home and God blessed them with temple worship and with a specific land that he promised them all the way going back to Abraham. And, and so they weren't in exile, they were at home. And then when they're in exile, it, it, it often means that there's another powerful nation that kind of conquered them, took over, and they no longer got to live on the land that was promised to them and worship the way that was promised to them. And so that's the season that we're in right now. Babylon had conquered them a little while ago. And then, um, is, you know, Israel, they're, 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 they're a feisty little group, right? The, you know, Babylon's this, this great world military power, the greatest world military power at the time. And, and Israel and, and, and Jerusalem particularly, they're a feisty little group because God had promised them this land. So they're really, you know, often what would happen in the history of Israel is they would, there'd be like armies and people who would raise up and they would kick out these, these kind of the, the, the oppressors and, the, and they'd get them out of the town. And then, you know, obviously they would just come back with like 10 times more people and take them back over again. And so that's what happens here is, 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 is Babylon and they just come, come back and they go, okay, you, you just stop this stuff, like just stop the madness. And so they, they, what they do is they, this time around, instead of leaving the, 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 the kind of the key leaders and the influencers in the community, they actually take them out of the community and they bring them to Babylon. That's what King Nebuchadnezzar does. And, and you can understand why, right? If, if, we just, if we just like conquer them again and put them in their place, like if you leave the key influencers in the places of power and authority and position and influence, and they're just going to raise up again, right? And so this time they're like, here, let's take them out of their land and let's bring them to Babylon so that we can um, indoctrinate them, that we can assimilate them. The goal for King Nebuchadnezzar was to change the minds of the key leaders and influencers and then send them back, they wouldn't have to conquer them anymore because they conquered their minds, right? They, 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 they shifted their thinking. They offered them new gods and new ways of worship and new stories to tell. They robbed them from their old stories, got rid of those, sent them back with these new stories. And then, well, the people are just going to be more Babylonian than they will be Jewish, right? That's kind of the thinking. And, and that makes sense. The side note is like, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but that's kind of it's kind of happening in, in the post-Christian secular West, right? Like, we're being offered new stories. And, and people understand, this is, this is 2,500 years ago, and people understood back then that that's the way to truly conquer a people. The way to truly conquer a people is to take them from their land, offer them a new story, and a couple generations later, you can send them back, and they're just going to, they're going to represent you, not represent their history and their roots, Right? And we're kind of undergoing that in the West right now. We have a history that we don't pay attention to that no one really teaches us that well. And, and we're undergoing kind of this shift in culture. We're being offered these new stories, these new ideas, these new thoughts on what's right, what's true, and how to live with the hope that this will be a conquered land for the sake of that perspective or that ideology rather than stay the land it was or has been historically. Which is why, again, we don't... Nobody's telling us our shared history, especially the ones that's rooted in a Judeo-Christian worldview and values. But that's a bit of a side note. We get this clue that this is happening from verse uh, 8 and 9. In 8 and 9, it says, yes, this is what the Lord Almighty says. God of Israel says, don't let your prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They're prophesying lies to you in my name, and I have not sent them. So the diviners and the prophets, they would have been the influencers. They would have been the, the, the thought leaders, right? And, and so these people have been taken to Babylon and they're being told new ways of thinking and new stories. And, and this is what God is saying through Jeremiah to the, to the Israelites who are in exile. He says, don't listen to them. Like, don't, 
Don't buy what they're selling you because it's not from me. They might be able to convince you that it is, but it's not from me. That's his, that's his advice to them in this letter. So Jeremiah, he sends this letter to these exiles and he sends it to many more people in that land and he tells them how they ought to live during the season of exile. You've got these Jewish people who have a way of thinking, who have a story and they're not living in a land that actually uh, shares that story. And so he says, this is how you live. This is what I, this is what I have for you. And you can imagine there's a there's hundred different ways that this could go. You know, people have been debating for many years, like, what does it mean to live like a Christian in a post-Christian, post-in a secular society like Canada? Do you run for the hills? Because it makes sense if God said, hey, first chance you get, take off for the hills, right? Find your way back to Jerusalem. It seems like it makes reasonable sense. Uh, He could have told them, he could have said, hey, look, totally assimilate, just to spare your life. It's not worth dying over. So if they're just like, if they're threatening your life, like just assimilate entirely. It's not, it's not worth your life. Uh, some would maybe think like maybe the best response for an exile is to like hide in your own little caves or whatever and like do your own thing behind closed doors, but be very secretive and don't tell anybody. Uh, in, the, in the West here, we have this conversation about like involvement in politics or not. Should Christians be involved in, you know, post-Christian secular politics or not, right? And you wrestle with that piece of it. Is God called people to the public sphere or not, right? And so that's kind of the conversation that's happening here. And we have advice from at least this is, this is the heart of God for Israel while they're in ex- uh, exile. There's kind of three things that stand out about what he told the exiles to live like in the land. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, uh, on behalf of God. The first thing that he tells them, he says, live and settle in Babylon. He tells them to live and settle in Babylon. He tells them not to withdraw, not to separate. He tells them to live and settle. Look at this in verse four through six. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what the gardens produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and daughters, give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. So that's, that's, that's inspiring. So how do we live as exiles? Have babies who have babies, right? Like, oh yeah, have grandchildren and have more grandchildren. What? Like, we want out of here. I don't want to settle down here. I'm not looking to lay my roots here. I'm, I'm on, I want out of here, right? And God's advice to them is um, settle down, have kids, and have grandkids. This is a generational game here. This is, this, is a, this, is a, this is a long game. This is not a short game. I'm not saying look for the quickest exit and get out of there back to Jerusalem. He said, look, become a part of the land. He essentially says, make your home here and plan to raise generations here. He's saying, don't think about the next move. I don't know about you, but being a part of Milton, like Milton's fairly transient, isn't it? And the GTA is fairly transient, and it feels like the second you finally move somewhere, you're thinking of where else you're going to move, right? You're, you're constantly thinking of what's your next step. You're trying to maximize your 80 years here. And so I don't know where you come from and what your story is and what kind of place you're from and what brought you here, but, 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 I don't, but the, the norm or the narrative is like, oh, this is, this is just a place to stop. We're going somewhere else. We're not here, right? Milton kind of feels like that and has for many people 
for a long time. And what God's advice, at least to Israel in exile, was get your heads, get it out of your heads that you're only here for a short time. Like, get it out of your heads that you're supposed to be heading home ASAP. You're here. Settle down. The second advice, not advice, command that God gives them through the prophet Jeremiah, he says this, uh, he tells them to resist. We saw this in verse 8 and 9. It wasn't settle down and just become exactly like Babylon. He says resist. He says don't let them convince you. Don't let them deceive you. Don't let them change your mind. You have a story. You have a history. Don't forget it. Tell that story over and over again and remind each other that whatever they're offering you as like the new revelation is not the new revelation. It's not from me. So he says resist that. Don't just fully take it all in. Don't just become like Miltonians. Don't do as the Romans do, but don't think like the Romans think, right? Just because you live here doesn't mean that you need to also just assimilate to the bad ideas that maybe those in power and influence are, 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 are sharing, right? Because you have a story. Don't forget it. And the third thing he tells, tells them to do, he tells them to love sacrificially. He says, don't be contemptuous, don't be selfish, don't be disdainful, don't be problematic. He says in verse 7, he says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for that, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. In other words, make this your home. Don't treat it like you're a tourist. Treat it like it's your home. Live here. Be fully present. It's kind of the sense you get. Be fully involved is the picture that you get. Now note something. This is interesting. It says here in um, the first verse that we read, it it says that King Nebuchadnezzar took the Israelites and brought them into into exile, right? If you look at it, if you have the Bible, look at it. It says King King Nebuchadnezzar brought them to exile. But you'll notice actually in verse 4, in verse 7, who brought the Israelites to Babylon in exile? This is the Lord did. Right? I, thought, I, thought, I thought the king did that. I thought, I thought the oppressor brought us here. And what God's saying through Jeremiah is, is he's saying, yeah, I brought you here. Like, how can it be both at the same time? Who is it? The book of Acts um, Christians have gotten this idea from the book of Acts. It's an interesting idea. And that's the idea that no matter where we live, uh, it's the place God has us to live. Wherever, wherever our neighbors are, it's, it's God's intention that they're our neighbors, right? It's this, it's this weird picture of sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, and you wrestle with that because of your own will. You've chosen to live somewhere for probably very practical reasons. Maybe you followed like the voice of God in some kind of way, but many of us just followed the housing market or the job market, right? And, 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 and so we think we're here because of a choice that we made, but, but in the book of Acts, it kind of suggests that, that maybe God is actually orchestrating things in a bigger way. Check this out in verse uh, chapter 17, 24. I'll read to 26. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. 
Christians have been looking at that for a while, contemplating, am I here because God has me here? Like, do I inhabit this time and this space because God has me here in this time and this space? It's a worthwhile question to ask. Sometimes we think it's social forces. Sometimes we think it's economic forces. Sometimes we think it's political forces. We've got, there's all, we can always blame politics, right? And like, we live here because we've been forced out of our land to this place because of who, you know? Don't name him, but who, you know? Like, we sometimes think of the economy or we think of the job market and we think that's the reason we're here. And so, so we blame all sorts of other social or economic forces that lead us to be where we are when we are. But the reality is, that what might be true is that actually God has us here. And it's not that we shouldn't cite reason when someone asks you, hey, what are you doing in Milton? You should probably tell them if you chose to move to Milton because you could afford a townhouse and you couldn't afford it in Mississauga. Like, you can tell them that story. It's not wrong to tell them that. You made that conscious choice. You have an act of uh, your will to choose to move somewhere. But, but maybe the bigger story is that actually God's orchestrating something really big. He used King Nebuchadnezzar to actually orchestrate Israel being in Babylon the way he did. And maybe he's using some of the social and economic forces in our day to place us here. And so at least this morning, what I want us to consider and contemplate is that it very, it very well may be God's intention for you to inhabit the time and the space that you currently inhabit. It may very well be God's intention. If you're a follower of God and you believe in the sovereignty of God and you believe that God's working all things out for his great plan, then what might be true is that you're first and foremost here because God's put you here. He's chosen the time and the boundaries and you're just supposed to live in them and from them faithfully to God. And he had Israel where he had them for a reason. And you might have us here for a reason. People are moving into the city in droves. I don't know if you've noticed, but, um, but the city's getting quite busy, isn't it? And uh, it's like thousands of people are going to move into brand new homes every year for the next 20 years and beyond, right? Like by the time you have grandkids or your kids have grandkids, there will probably still be thousands of people every year buying homes and moving into Milton. That's wild to think about. But the truth is, the statisticians are saying that uh, in the next 15 years, Milton will grow by another 100,000 people. And some of you, like, you were a part of Milton when it was 20,000 people. And you think today is wild. You're like, this is wild. This is too much. I cannot handle this. This, is, uh, this needs to stop, right? And it's like, newsflash, this is not going to stop. This will not stop. It's going to, more and more and more people are moving into the town of Milton and will for the rest of your life and for your children's life and for your grandkids' life if they stick around. Sorry to break your heart this morning. <laughs> it's not a bad thing, though. What may also be true is that God is growing this community, right? What may also be true is that God has us as exiles here in this town and he's surrounding us with hundreds of thousands of people. It may be that God has us here for a reason and a purpose and he's bringing people here for a reason 
and a purpose. Sometimes I grieve uh, when I hear Christians say this, and, I, and this is not an indictment because I, I understand it. And I think God has different things for different people, so it's not like, don't hear me as a, this is not a critique on you if you've said it, because we've all said it when we're driving down Main Street and it takes us nine minutes to get a kilometer, right? So we've all said it. But sometimes I grieve when I hear people say, gosh, if I had it my way, I would just pack up and move out to the countryside, right? And, um, and I grieve when I hear that sometimes because I think, what would become of Milton if we all decided to pack up and move to the countryside. Like the church has done that in Toronto. I don't know if you've been around. I don't know if you're from there. I don't know if you work there, but it's really hard to do ministry in Toronto. It's very expensive, and there's some amazing faithful communities left there, but there's a lot who have said, "Ah, this would be easier out in the burbs. And it's the same people who are saying, "Let's let's get out of Dodge. And I agree because I... Because I think God's bringing people to a place, and if the people of God are leaving that place, then what's left in that place? And, and I don't know about you, but I'm not... I don't think God's done with Milton, right? I think God's getting just started with Milton. And I'm using Milton as the example because that's where we are and that's where we inhabit, but I don't think... I don't think he wants less of us here. I think he wants more of us here. I don't, I don't think... God's intention for us is to leave the town because it's, you know, secular or whatever. I think his intention is for us to inhabit the town, to be the light of Jesus in the town. Anyway, wherever people are, churches are desperately needed. Verse 7, it says that um, this is God's intention for Israel in the place. Verse 7, we already read, it says, Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile, and pray for the Lord, or pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The word peace there is the, is the Hebrew word shalom. And if you've done any word study on the word of shalom, you'll know like this dominates. Um, the vision of the kingdom for both Israel and also the Christians into the future. It's the, the, the understanding of shalom is like the, the perfect fulfillment of God's will. It's not just peace like there's no conflict. It's like, it's like everything is put right. It's put in its place properly. It's, it's, it's as it's meant to be at its best. So that's, that's the idea. And, and what he's saying here is um, your job is to seek the peace and prosperity of your town of the city which I've carried you in. Now we hear prosperity and we go, ah, prosperity gospel, and we lose our mind. Let's not lose our mind. We're more complex than that, right? The the peace of God, the perfect tranquility, the shalom of God results in good things. Because, well, if it results in bad things, (laughs) well, it's probably not of God. So the prosperity is just the consequence of the peace and shalom of God. He says, I want you to seek that we we are we are here because our our goal is to bring that as ambassadors of Christ is to represent the shalom the peace of God for the city Luis an elder who was just praying prayed about how we are the light of the world and we're a light in the city and that's that's the Christian calling it's the Christian responsibility and he says that it starts with prayer. We've talked a lot about prayer, haven't we? 
He says, uh, do it from a place of prayer. He says, pray to the Lord and ask for it. Ask God for it. We bring peace to Milton in partnership with God. We don't, we don't bring it on our behalf. We actually bring it on behalf of God because it's his peace that we're ultimately offering this city. And the outcome of this, what God promised, is prosperity for the city. I don't know about you, but in the West, this is how we tend to think about cities. Tell me if I'm wrong. But we see cities as a means to our prosperity, don't we? Like when we think of cities, we think, where can I go for job, economic value to myself, affordable housing, um, good investment? That's how we think of cities. That's how individualists think of cities. And so our cities are built um, by and for people to use for their prosperity. And what we do is we actually, we dispose of the city when we get everything that we could have gotten out of it, don't we? You've seen the people, you know them, they invest, they come here for investment, it's for their prosperity. Ooh, this is a good opportunity. Let me work this city to my advantage and then, ooh, when that dries up, let's move somewhere else. Or, oh, I've gotten everything I can get out of this city, let's go somewhere else. Or, it's not serving my needs anymore. Or, ooh, guess where the next place is to go? Let's head to Guelph, you know? That's what we do. Because we treat the city like it's a means to our prosperity. And, and, and at least the model of God to Israel for the exiles in Babylon was that you're called to the city for the city. You're not there for you. You're there for the city. It's, it's not your prosperity, at least the prosperity I want you to experience is only the result of the peace you bring to the city. It's what you have to offer the city. It's how you give to the city. It's how you offer yourself to the city. The goodness that you're looking for in life will be found when you actually treat the city, the community, the space like it's the place that you are there to bring prosperity to, not um, take prosperity from. You see that? You can see the difference. We live in a very transient place, and that's why. Because people see towns and cities as a means to an end. And at least God's model for the people of God in Israel, and I think for us today, is that we don't see the town of Milton as a means to an end of personal prosperity. We actually see it as the very place God has put us to bring his shalom to. That's the Christian vision for living in a city and being a part of a town. I think. And then he goes on to say, this is God's promise to the Israelites in exile. This is what he promises them in Babylon. He says, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. I'll be faithful. If you do what I'm telling you to do, I have you there for a reason. What you want and desire out of life, I will bring it to you. He says, I'll know that you, um, for I know the plans I have for you. There we go. That's where we find this. I, I know the plans I have for you. Do this, and I know the plans. And if you do this, then you will prosper. I have plans for you. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I don't want you to settle in this city and offer yourself to the city for your harm. It's for your good, and it's for your kids' good, and it's for your grandkids' good, and it's for the good of the city. I have plans to prosper you and to give you a hope of the future. And you're going to call on me, and you're going to pray to me, and I will listen to you, it says in verse 12. You'll seek me, and you will find me with all your heart. And I'll be found by you, declares the Lord. And I'll bring 
you back from captivity. I'll gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place from which I carried you in to exile. This is the promise of God if we follow his pattern for living in exile. And our invitation to this community and the community broader is to start to adjust our thinking, just the perspective, just our orientation towards that in which God would call the exiles to live, which is to be people who are rooted, who settle in, who have kids, who have kids. We've talked about this. I hope there's a church in Milton for my grandkids. Otherwise, I failed as a spiritual leader in this town. If there's not a great church for your grandkids to worship in and be formed in in 30 years and we have failed today as disciple makers in this city. Resist. Don't just eat it all up. We resist bad ideas and we stick with the story. We're reminded of the story. We remind one another of the story and our place in it. And then we serve. We give. Our orientation is of peace bringers for the sake of prosperity of others before our concern is for our own well-being and prosperity. If we live that way in Milton, then my hope and my trust is that the kingdom of God will come to Milton as it is in heaven like you promised because that's God's economy. So coming this fall, I want to invite you to continue reorienting your life around kingdom priorities. There's lots of ways that we can do that. There's lots of ways that that looks like. And if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, you've probably got all sorts of ideas of what God would want you to double down on in prioritizing the kingdom of God. At Southside, we have two, at least today I'm saying, in the next coming months, we're going to invite you into kind of two primary things. And the first is communities at Southside. Communities at Southside is... um, is the place where you go from being someone sitting here listening on Sunday and having your kids up in a good kids program to like um, becoming family with a smaller core group of people who you eat together with, you pray together with, you serve alongside. Uh, Communities at Southside is something that we're constantly building and investing into, trying to uh, empower new leaders to lead into, find new homes to meet in and gather in. It's a place where you uh, can be fully known and fully loved by the body of Christ and where discipleship truly happens. I hope you're inspired this morning, convicted, inspired, the mix of whatever you're supposed to get on a Sunday morning, but discipleship happens best in the context of community. And so the more you hear about that, I hope you resolve in your heart to uh, find a space and a time and a people to gather with in a more intimate setting. And then the second way is um, the way that we bring peace and shalom to Milton is serving. We step up into opportunities. We use our time, our talents, and our gifts to serve the church and the broader community. I uh, sometimes have been um, apologetic about inviting people into that, thinking, yeah, you, you got your own thing, and, and it's not all about building this, this church like under the banner of Southside or whatever. It's not about brand, and uh, it's not about, it's, it's, it's about the kingdom of God like across the city, of course, and what you're doing in your workplace and your marketplace is as much mission as serving in our kids' program. But, um, but if we're not serving this body with our hands and our feet 
in a serious and tangible way, then we are missing something. We're missing out on the peace and shalom that God has to bring us specifically to this community first and foremost. So we're going to invite you into that. I'm going to invite my friend Laura up. And Laura is, uh, is just going to tell us about one of those opportunities that is a need and is going to continue to be a greater need if we're serious about generations and generations, kids and kids and kids. So, Laura? Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, I always leave here with a lot to think about. So thanks for what you shared. I think it's really cool. Um, and I didn't tell Andrew I was going to say this, but just even being here this morning, you see God working in different people, and you see what happens, you know, when Luis uses his gifts just to be present here, and when Andrew uses his gift to share what's on his heart. And then you see how it trickles down and, and makes a difference, right? So, um, but that's not why I'm standing up here. Um, and also how, how, how gifts differ, right? Like I'm shaking and sweating and my heart's palpating already. Um, but that doesn't happen when I'm with the little kids. So uh, as I've said before, you guys are way more intimidating. But um, I wanted to, I was just thinking about serving. And um, you know, we serve because there's a need right? There's a void. So we're like, I can do that. I can feel that need. Um, but there's, a, there's another reason to serve. And I love, I love what Andrew uh, shared about like, just settling in for the generations, right? Like we serve so we can see more of Jesus. And we serve uh, not just to obey, which is important, but we serve because it gives us a glimpse of God and a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. And I, through the years, I've always worked with kids and um, had the privilege of seeing like these little windows into heaven because I work with kids. And so if you're on the fence and you haven't plugged in and you think, I like kids, <laughs> then I actually want to take a minute to encourage you to take that I like kids a step further and say, how can I get plugged in to serving the generations that will build generations in Milton? How can I do that right here at Southside? So uh, Andrew and I spoke about a week ago, and um, there's a real need here. Like, there's tons of kids, right? When it was time for children's time, like half the room emptied. But not only that, there's still kids left in here, right? There's a, there's a void. And so in the fall, we would love to have kid, kids programs on a Sunday morning that go all the way to grade 7. Um, so that means we need a few more people to help out. And there's a process to that, and we can talk about it. And you need, like, start your police check today, right? Because September's busy for police checks. Um, but, yeah, there, there's a need there. And so we want to fill that need. And then there's youth, right? And um, we, we need more people. And I wanted to tell you um, just briefly what I get from serving. And maybe that will tempt you to say, ah, I, I might want some of that. 
So um, there's this verse that you probably all know, and it's in Luke chapter 18. Um, it's really famous, verse 16. It says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. The part that stood out to me when I was thinking about this is the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And there's all kinds of examples I have through the years, but uh, there's two quick little vignettes that I wanted to share with you of where I saw the kingdom of God through the voice or the face of a child. So uh, I think there's a picture. What, what picture do you have there first? Okay, this is Benny. This is my Ben when he was four. You see him now, he's got a mop of curls. He's like this tall. Um, and on this morning, I had to take a picture of it after it happened because I was like, I'm never forgetting this. Um, so, you know, it was, you know, the kids were all little, typical morning, rush, rush, rush. Emma and Seth were off to school. Victor was off to work. And I had probably been up multiple times in the night, glass of water, bad dream, got to go pee, whatever. And it's just those years, you're just like going through the motions, right? Like completely exhausted, but also like your heart is living outside of your chest because I just put my two little babies on this big yellow thing and sent them off somewhere. And there goes, you know, half my heart. And then there goes my husband, who I barely ever see anymore. And there goes the other part. And then it's just me and Ben. And, you know, he's so sweet. And he just wanted a little snacky lunch. So I uh, put the snacks in the ice cube tray, because that's fun. And then we sit down. And I'm just like winded, right? And uh, we're just sitting there. I think, I think Ben knew he needed to be quiet. And uh, we're just sitting there, and like it's kind of breezy. It was February, actually, and it was really warm. And um, just quiet. Ben said, Mommy, do you hear God in the wind? Just out of the blue, right? He's, and I looked at him. He's like, because I do. It's like, yeah, yeah, I do. I feel God in the wind, right? And I was thinking the kingdom of heaven belongs to these, right? Ben saw the kingdom of heaven right there, four and a half years old. He saw it. He knew it. And I want to be with the people who see the kingdom of heaven. Like, why wouldn't I want to brush shoulders with them more often? right? They see it. They have, they don't have what we have. They haven't lived all the toxicity that we've lived. They just see it. Yeah, so I see God in the wind, and I hear him in the wind. And then there was this other moment. There's one other picture, and ben, uh, this is about Seth. I never told him I was going to say this, but oh, Seth. Seth was my thinker. He still is. And um, you know, still that busy time. The kids were even younger, because Seth is my oldest. I think he was about five and a half when this happened. And we were outside, and it's just, you know, you're just like this frazzled mom, like three kids under five. And 
I was just like, I don't know if I was leaning against the car or whatever. And then the, the foster kids had come over from next door and it was just like chaos, right? Just always busy. And uh, I saw this reflection in the window of the car and it was a rainbow. It was perfectly blue sky, you know, sunny day and it's this rainbow, which Victor told me is a circumzenithal arc for any of you looking for the scientific name. Okay. So I see this reflection, and it's a blue sky day. You're not expecting a rainbow. And so I looked up to the sky, and Seth was beside me, and it was upside down. It's like smiling. And Seth, of course, being very curious, a little scientifically minded, me not at all, I says, look, mommy, it's upside down. And I said, yeah, Seth, when we see, we had this little Sunday school song, I'm not singing it. When we see a rainbow, we know that God is love. And so, of course, just, you know, in mummy mode, automatic, I just said, yeah, Seth, when we see a rainbow, we know that God is love. And he's like, mummy, it's smiling. And I said, it's probably God's smile. And so Seth says, I love you, God. <laughs> and then um, it got brighter. Like, I, I kid you not, it got brighter. And then uh, Seth, I said, Seth, I think God's smiling at you. And Seth is like, I love you, God. I love you, Holy Spirit. I love you the most of anybody in the world. And honestly, the clouds just start clearing. The smile gets bigger. And that was like a glimpse into the kingdom, right? Like God, for me, maybe I'm making too much of it, but God was just like, I'll respond to that, right? I'll, I'll increase the show here. Like, I'll open up the skies because the faith of a child. And I'm like, why wouldn't I just want to be right beside the faith of the child who thinks and is probably right that God's just going to make the smile bigger, right? I'm an adult. I don't think, you know, I kind of lost that. Why wouldn't I want to be with the kids who are just going to give me that glimpse into the kingdom of heaven? So there's tons of ways you can serve. There's tons of ways to get involved and see that glimpse. Luis saw it the other day, right? God, can you just send her in? God's like, sure, hmm. right? So there's tons of ways to get involved and serve, but I just want to tell you, that there is a need in children's ministry. We want to grow it. We want to be able to build into generations. And even if you don't think you're qualified, it's not about being qualified. It's like, do you want a glimpse into the kingdom of heaven? Hmm. Come hang out with the kids. Good. Thanks, Laura.